Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Anybody else not wear a jacket today? Church? Rebels with a cause? Winter's over? I was talking to my parents. They live in New York. They got 18 inches last week. They're expecting another foot this week. I'm glad that we're seeing grass. It's good to have the kids outside, not inside. Here we are. Well, it's good to be with you this morning for those reasons and others. If you're new here, my name's Jesse. I'm the pastor here at Kishwaukee Bible Church, and we're in the midst of a series on the Gospel of John, a series entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. And if you've been with us, we've seen that Jesus changes quite a lot. We've seen already how He changes our beginnings and callings and longings, how Jesus changes rest and restoration, how He changes where we've come from and where we're going, and that He does it all through the cross. That's the great work that Jesus came to accomplish in this gospel in history itself. And alongside of that is the work that's left for us to throw ourselves into his hands, a a, a reckless abandonment into his grace, what this gospel calls belief. But we've seen already in this gospel how many believe in Jesus for all the wrong reasons. And yet in contrast to those who did so for all the wrong reasons, Today we'll meet someone who believed in him like they were meant to, who actually is a picture of what it looks like for any of us to believe in him. And we're going to meet this this character in John chapter 9, this figure. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to John chapter 9, which I want to begin today by reading. As you turn there, let me remind you though of the journey with Jesus that we've been on. Most recently, most recently we followed Jesus to many of the feasts that mark the Jewish calendar, where Jesus shows up not just as a spectator, but to make a statement. That celebrating what God did in the past and longing for God to do it again, these Jews were in fact longing for Jesus whether with the Sabbath or the Passover, or most recently, their Feast of Tabernacles, their Feast of Booths. But to recognize Jesus as the one they were longing for meant that they first had to recognize the void in their life that he came to fill, which isn't always comfortable. So most recently, when Jesus showed up at the Feast of Tabernacles, this Feast of Booths, and declared himself to be the light of the world, the crowd that was gathered there wasn't all that ready to admit that they were living in darkness. So, supposedly believing in him one minute, they're ready to stone him the next. We read it as the closing statement of chapter 8 that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, which is where we pick up the story in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. It says, 
As he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. He said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. (laughs) 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Before we look a little more closely at this account, let's pray. Heavenly Father, these things do not happen in the same way where we live. Not often. We don't see them like they were seen back then. Not like this. Yet we often take it to mean something it doesn't even mean. As if the eyes are the most important part of the body. We know that our problem, though, runs much deeper even than this man whose eyes were shut. We ask today that you would open up not only our eyes, but our hearts as well. That we would know you and see you for who you are and see your Son as our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, earlier this week, the iconic Cambridge theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, not Stephen Hawkins, it's Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking doesn't exist. The iconic Cambridge theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking passed away at the age of 76. If you know of him, if you've seen him in pictures, if you've seen him in videos, you'll know that he's been wheelchair bound for his, from his lifelong bout with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And only able in this latter part of his life to communicate with the assistance of a speech synthesizer, which he complains of having an American accent. He's British. And yet Hawking nonetheless held the professorship once occupied by the likes of Sir Isaac Newton. And he did so for a staggering 30 years in this Institute in the heart of of England, in Cambridge. 
He spent the vast majority of his esteemed career in search of what's been popularly called a theory of everything. It's a high title, but that's what he was after. A recent Hollywood film by that title documents his life's work as Hawking poses the question in that film, what if I reverse time to see what happened at the beginning of time itself? What if I look back As far as we can look back, what would we find? And for this man, bound to his wheelchair, in whose body every muscle but his brain eventually gave out, that's precisely what he set out to do, to rove the cosmos with his mind, to see what happened at the beginning of time itself. He once put it like this, my goal is simple. A complete understanding of the universe. Why it is as it is and why it exists at all. So starting with our universe matured, he worked back in his mind to what he saw as its infancy. And from there all the way to what he believed to be its birth. Many would say that whether right or wrong, even from his wheelchair, Stephen Hawking saw more of this world than most. But seeing God's world, seeing God's world, never led to him believing in God himself. He died, as far as we can tell, an avowed atheist. The only God he ever conceived of was a God of the gaps and and figured for himself that he had closed all the gaps and therefore left no room for God, which ought to concern those of us who are convinced that the heavens declare the glories of our Maker. How can a man spend his entire life looking up at the stars and miss the one who threw them there? How could a man who supposedly saw so well not see God? And this passage in John 9 may be able to help us understand. Not because it it follows Hawking's own attempt to wind back the story of our universe from maturity through infancy to its birth, but because it rather tells the story of another man's coming to faith from the birth of belief through its infancy to what I'm going to call its maturity. And this man's coming to faith is meant in some measure to explain why others like Hawking never do come to faith. So that's what I want to look at briefly this morning. The birth of belief, the infancy of belief, and what I'm going to call this morning the maturity of belief. What is this thing called faith that this gospel is so much about? First, the birth of belief. And to begin, I want to draw your attention to the question posed by Jesus' disciples. They're on their way out of the temple and seeing a man who was congenitally blind ask a question that's not any more odd today than it would have been back then. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? And it's 
no more odd because it's not really odd because according to popular belief, what goes around comes around. If you're going through the muck in life, it reasons, according to popular belief, that you probably are there because you messed up along the way. Or somebody else messed up. And now you're paying for it. Your wallet went missing because you're fudging your taxes. God's punishing you. Or you're living in a ditch because your parents were always fudging their taxes. Whatever they ended up doing in life. But you're paying for it. And you're just the product of your environment. And we act like the opposite is true as well. You're flying high because you've been doing pretty good. But listen to how Jesus enters into this. This is important. He doesn't deny the general idea that what we do in life or or what's done to us affects where we end up. But he, in effect, says to the disciples, you're not seeing this right. Because there's not a one-to-one correlation between these two things. He says in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. For sure, there are consequences in life for our actions, but not all pain, and it goes for pleasure as well, not all pain is directly related to something you did or didn't do. And there's a reason for that. We're all part of a story that's much bigger than ourselves. The world we live in is one that's still bursting with God's grace even after we went and ruined it. You see this around you, right? The world is not as bad as it could be. It could be worse. Hard to believe sometimes, but it's true. And yet, it's also not as good as it should be. And so, even though it's still bursting with God's grace, it's also likewise on the flip side, steaming with consequences for things done long before any of us were around to do them. This world was broken long before you and I had a chance to break it, even though we've added to the problem. And so Jesus is saying you shouldn't act like God's auditor spending time trying to figure it out if the ledger balances. Spend a lot of time doing that, right? Why me? Why this? Why now? What did I do? And for sure, consequences follow actions. But that's not the main thing Jesus says you should be looking at. You shouldn't be trying to figure out so much, occupying yourself with the cause of each effect, but rather focusing on trying to understand the purpose of the pain, which Jesus seems to be saying is always the same. See, pain and suffering, darkness, comes in all sorts of shades. And its causes are often too complicated to pin down, but its purpose is always the same. In the case of this man born blind, Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents. The cause is questionable. But in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the statement carries beyond just this fellow in this text. 
for Jesus, the works he does, right, that this, these things are, this is happening to this man, this man is born blind, blind, that the works of God might be displayed. For Jesus, the works he does are those that point to the great work he does that he accomplishes on the cross. That's his work. It always is in John. It's utterly consistent if you go back and look at his use of these words. What is the works of God? For Jesus, it's the work he accomplishes on the cross, shining as the light of the world, showing the darkness what it is and inviting it into the light. And for the rest of us, it's like Jesus said a couple chapters ago, look back at chapter 6, he said this to the crowd, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus says here in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. I do mine, you do yours. The light shines. Turn to the light. As long as I am in the world, he says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus, as the sent one, sends this man to the pool called sent. Puts in his eyes, right? Mud on his face, big disgrace. Sends him off to the pool. And you can imagine, this would have been odd. What would you have been doing as this guy on your way to the pool? I mean, how did you even make it there, right? Not not only are you blind, you got mud in your face. And yet sends him off, the, the sent one, sends him off to the, to the pool called sent. A pool, if you remember, played a very special part in this feast that the Jews were just celebrating. The pool of Siloam, where the water was drawn and Jesus said, I'm the one that pours the water of life out. Sends him off to the, the pool of Siloam, the sent one, to the pool called sent. A pool to which this man goes, but ultimately comes back seeing. Yet this story of Jesus driven out of the temple by those who supposedly believed in him, who turned to stone him because they were unwilling to accept what he said about them and their need for him, The story of Jesus handpicking a blind guy to carry out the work of God. This is a story that's about more than just his seeing with his eyes. It's about the birth of belief in his heart. Even here, even on the front end of this, he's showing what it takes and what it looks like to respond and the effects of that. A belief that is birthed out of brokenness on which the light of the world shines. That's important. That's important. Because rather than going around searching for the cause of every painful effect in life, to focus on the purpose that these things are meant to birth in you a belief in God's Son is a very different way to look at all that's wrong with the world. But more than just the the birth of belief, this is also a story about the infancy of belief, about how belief grows and takes off on its little toddler legs. 
So when some start to question him and cast doubt on whether he had actually received back his sight, this guy is quick to point out in verse 11 that the man called Jesus was the one who had healed him. But look at how much stronger a statement he makes when he's brought before the religious leaders. Everybody's real interested in how Jesus did it, right? You would be too. But they're even more so when they find out, when we're told that he did this on the Sabbath. Which leads the Pharisees to conclude that Jesus is not from God. They finally get around to asking the blind man what he has to say about this Jesus. And he gives his answer at the end of verse 17. He says he is a prophet. Now, Jesus had been hailed this before, even in this gospel. First, the woman at the well, then the crowd in the wilderness, and even by some at the very, this very feast that we're at the tail end of. And at the very least, it's an affirmation of what these religious leaders just denied, that Jesus is from God. Can't be. He broke the Sabbath again. Yet the man says he is a prophet. He is a prophet. And then states it explicitly when they come back around to him after cross-examining his parents. Not a great way to be parents in this regard. They're not cast in the best light. Okay. Side note. I'm not going to focus too much on that. Side note. So notice his parents go as far as identifying him, but, but they won't say anything about Jesus, Right? because there's a threat that they'd be kicked out of the synagogue if they did. Yet when the Pharisees come back to this guy, the guy himself, it's clear he never kept up with Judge Judy. He never watched Matlock. He didn't know this is not how you respond in in a court case where you're one of the witnesses, right? Listen to what he says. Verse 30, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Who's on trial here? Verse 32, he says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So they reply, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. I think I would have been second guessing this even if it was just my seat at the lunch table that was at stake. Let alone my seat at the center of society. That's what the synagogue was. It was the center of society. Maybe it was because this guy had already been an outcast that made it easier for him already lived on the outside of that society. But you've got to wonder still, what gave him the guts or what looks a little like insanity to stand up to the religious powerhouses of his day? What gave him the guts to, 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 to find it, though, we have to go back a bit further, back before those verses, that second time they they come to him. Take a look before these these verses that I just read. When they come to him that second time after interrogating his parents, they say in verse 24, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. To which this guy says it's one of the most remarkable one-liners in the Bible. 
Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is what's driving his belief. He's, he's still growing in his understanding of who Jesus is, but, but this is how he found his legs. There's a, very, there's a very little that can undermine in life. There's very little that can undermine a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. You could carry that with you. You can carry that with you. You can debate all sorts of things about the existence of God and, and how to prove that to other people. But if you encounter Jesus, you know you've encountered Jesus. And I'm not talking about like a feeling of God. I'm not talking about just a, just a, a thought that you, you, you think you might know or definitely not like one of these Ouija board kind of experiences. It's not that. I'm talking about someone who makes sense of God's story, who shines a light so much on you and on your life that you know you're the one in the dark and God's the one on the other side. But then doesn't only present the problem, but presents the solution. No one can take that away from you. A personal encounter with God. It seems hokey to say that to someone else. And it may not be your first step in an, a, an, a, a debate, an apologetic debate. I'll tell you what, there's actually a guy out there who's one of the four most Christian apologists alive today who not even Richard Dawkins was willing to debate where this is the place he lands in every one of his appearances. That I know because I've met God. It's not the first place he goes. And it's not even essentially what he does for other people to convince them. But it is something no one can take away from those who have met Jesus. The words weren't penned yet, but they may very well have been echoing in this guy's head if they were. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No one can take that away. Never underestimate the power of a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It's how this guy finds his legs, his little toddler legs and his come into faith. And yet there's one more frame in this collage when this man's belief moves from birth through infancy to what I'm going to call today maturity. And I don't mean to say that, that he's, he's not going to grow in faith from here or, or even imply that, that a less than belief is possible as if, if you don't get to this place, you actually have the belief this guy had, the faith this guy had that was founded on this experience, this encounter with God. But I do want to say that, that at the end of this story, he comes to know this Jesus 
Not just for what he does, but for who he is. It's a beautiful picture that this man who's, who's been cast by the religious leaders of his day out of the, the center of society is pursued by Jesus. He didn't ask to be healed in the first place. But that didn't stop there. That at the end, even when cast out, it's Jesus who comes to this guy, finds this guy, and he asks this question to which the whole story has been heading. Do you believe in the Son of Man? For this man born blind, his answer isn't hindered or hampered like so many others in the gospel. It's not encumbered by a a better than spiritual pride that everyone else seems to be struggling with or thinking of himself more highly than he ought. That will devastate your journey of faith. But for this guy, the only thing in his way is a little bit of ignorance. So he answers verse 36, and, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him. He's waiting to believe in him. He's waiting for something to put his faith. He knows he can't do it. He just got his sight back. Born blind. He's waiting for someone to trust him. It's not all that hard. Faith is not all that hard. Sometimes it's a conundrum. But it's not all that hard to do. Now we tend to go off of it. But it's not all that hard. It's just trusting in someone to do what you can't. We have to go running out to find out that we can't do it again and again and again. But it's not all that hard to do. To trust in someone to do what you can't. Who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? To which Jesus says, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And listen to this. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He's the only guy in the Gospel of John that does it. Actually worships Jesus. It's the only time. Talk about worshipping God in other contexts. John 4, the woman at the well. A lot of talk about worshipping God. Jesus is there, standing as the God-man to receive that, but, but it's never talked about in that way. This guy is it. The paradigm of faith. Of what it looks like from birth, that is birthed out of brokenness, through infancy, that it's driven by an encounter with the light of life, an embracing of his own darkness. It culminates finally in maturity in a life of worshiping Jesus. Not just for what he's done, as important as that is, but for who he is. Because the two go hand in hand, right? And everybody else is running after Jesus because of what he does, or what he could do, or what they can get. But not this guy. He knows what he needs. But he worships Jesus for who he is. The birth of belief, the infancy of belief, the maturity of belief. But if this whole incident of Jesus giving physical sight to a guy who couldn't physically see, 
was in fact about Jesus calling him to spiritual belief. Let me land by asking what it has to do with the growing conflict over Jesus in this gospel. Or even with the passing of Stephen Hawking earlier this week. And perhaps it's best to say it like this. The matter of spiritual blindness, of not being able to see who you are and what you need and who's going to satisfy that need, the matter of spiritual blindness will never be decided based on physical sight. Let me say that again. The matter of spiritual blindness, of understanding this world, our place in it, who made it and who can make it right again, will never be decided based on physical sight. Whether you acknowledge the existence of God like the Pharisees did, or you question that existence, deny that existence like Stephen Hawking. There is a common pride that prevents them from seeing themselves as they truly are. They've stepped into the judge's seat. They've picked up the judge's gavel and tried to make themselves judges over God rather than recognize that they will ultimately be judged by Him. They are unwilling to recognize their own darkness and so will never be shattered by the light. It will be exposed The darkness will be exposed, but it will never be shattered for them to be free of it. So seeing physically is not the foundation of believing spiritually. Seeing is not believing. Jesus changes it. Shows us that first it's believing. It's rather believing spiritually in Jesus and all the implications that come with Him, all of what that means for who we are, that that's the foundation of seeing as we are. Which is why Jesus heals this man at all. You know, if you remember at the front end of the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, Jesus' brothers prodded Him to to go up to the feast where some were seeking already to kill Him. To go up, show Himself in public, rather than hide in private. Do you remember them saying it? Because for them, seeing was believing. And yet after he does, by the end of chapter 8, after showing himself, Jesus has to hide again. Why? Because when he declares himself to be the light of the world, he simultaneously declares that his audience is living in darkness and they don't like that. So that even here, they're perfectly content to tell this man born blind that he was born in utter sin. Which in fact is a true statement. They're just unwilling to see that it's true for them as it is for him. You were born children of the devil. I was born a child of the devil, following the devil. 
as much an enemy as God as I could be. And Jesus showing up and living a life like He could. Something that could be seen, that is recorded in this Gospel and three others that are just as good. He was saying something about me. But He also was inviting me to something better. So Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. We'll look more at the reaction of the Pharisees next week. But let me leave you with the three things I hope you walk away seeing today. First, I hope you see your brokenness. I hope you, see, I hope you even embrace that as a part of your past, as something God's taking out of you by grace, yes. But I hope you see your brokenness. No matter how you've landed there or, or whatever the cause, the fact is, is that that's where we all begin. And beyond that, that the purpose of this brokenness, the purpose of your pain at every level is to push you to faith, to belief, to trust in Jesus. That's the story from the very beginning of the Bible. Kicked out of a perfect garden that we would eventually find our way back. Not because we found it for ourselves, but because the light of the world showed up to show us how dark we are and to show us what we need to get back. That's the story from the very beginning of the Bible. The purpose of pain is to push you to faith in Christ to that reckless abandonment, into His grace. And while we may not always be able to discern the cause that led to the pain, in recognizing our pain and the darkness we start out in, you can be certain that the brokenness itself is intended as a cause for belief. That's why C.S. Lewis says that even pleasure can be ignored, but pain insists upon being attended to. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Which is also why a life like that of Stephen Hawking, which was so riddled with pain, bound to his wheelchair for most of his life, why that life is in the end such a tragedy. You know, he said once, he said once that life would be a tragedy if it weren't so funny. And yet if that's all life is, It's still a tragedy in the end. Let me also say that I hope you see, though, the barrier to belief found in spiritual pride. This is a barrier, I think, every one of us has to get over. God has to get us over it before we come to Christ for the first time. But it is something that haunts us because it's what is wrong with us to begin with. The barrier to faith to belief found in spiritual pride. Let me encourage you, both for yourselves and in your relationships with others, whether family or friends or frenemies is a term I heard this week, or whoever God puts in your path, that you ought to come to grips with the brokenness and avoid at all costs the tendency to sweep it under the rug. To play off 
of, of, of something that's been said by others recently. Our darkness is more dire than we ever dreamed. But the light shines brighter, dawns brighter than we would have ever hoped. And by this, by His life, Jesus shows us that we're not light. But then through His death that He's paved the way back to God that we might be in light again. So let me encourage you not to just sweep that under the rug. Come to grips with that. Bear that. And as you walk with somebody and know that that's, that's one of their barriers to faith, you can understand that the way you can help them most, the way that God sort of orchestrated this, how He works, is by you bearing your own darkness. By not making like that's not a part of life. And then making them set up their own walls. It's an honesty with each other. That's how we can help one another in our journey of faith. So lastly then, I hope though you also see Jesus. Not just for what he does, but for who he is. Just picking up on Hawking's search for meaning behind the universe. Let me say that you cannot find that apart from this book, the record of redemption that it records. Even Hawking's wife recognized that he had gone the wrong direction when she said in her memoirs this, since the scientist's modes of thought are dictated by purely rational, materialistic criteria, physicists cannot claim to answer the questions of why the universe exists and why we human beings are here to observe it. Talking's wife, who recognized more than he did about the limitations of going after this in some other way. You travel to the edge of the material universe, and if that's all you're looking at, even though God's fingerprints are all over it, you will miss God Himself. It is through this book alone that we find out our place in this world. And so let me encourage you then to not forget Jesus. In this book... As an annal of history, we find that this light of the world that dawned on the darkness was no less than God himself, the light that originally dawned at creation and dawns to recreate it again. See Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a lot of ways, is just a simple story, a little profound not something I've experienced in this side of history, but just a simple story with a profound meaning. Pray that even today you would lift the spiritual darkness by shining the light of Jesus into our lives. Pray you'd do it for his glory, for our good, and the good of your world. In his name I pray, amen. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And as long as he is in the world, now through his spirit, 
May we continue to do the works of God. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.